let me extend a very warm welcome to the, this series of Gifford Lectures at the University of Edinburgh for the session 2015 to 2016. My name is Stuart Brown, and I'm Professor of Ecclesiastical History and Deputy Convener of the Gifford Lectureships Committee. Allow me to say a few words about the Gifford Lectures before I introduce our lecturer. The Gifford Lectures were established in 1885 by a gift from Adam Lord Gifford, a justice of the Court of Session and a man of broad learning and cultivation. He endowed a series of public lectures at each of the four older Scottish universities, Edinburgh, St. Andrews, Glasgow, and Aberdeen, for promoting, advancing, teaching, and diffusing the study of natural theology. With natural theology defined as the knowledge of God and the foundation of ethics or morals. The first Gifford lectures were delivered in 1888. And at the University of Edinburgh, our past Gifford lectures have included such luminaries as William James, Henri Bergson, James G. Fraser, Albert Schweitzer, Reinhold Niebuhr, Iris Murdoch, Charles Taylor, and Rowan Williams. Our Gifford lecturer for the session 2015 to 16 is Professor Catherine Tanner, a distinguished theologian, philosopher, and social scientist who currently holds the title of Markand Professor of Systematic Theology at Yale Divinity School. Catherine Tanner was educated at Yale University where she received her doctorate. She taught in the Religious Studies Department of Yale University for 10 years and then in the Divinity School of the University of Chicago for 16 years where she latterly served as the Dorothea Grant McClear Professor of Theology. She returned to Yale and to her current professorial chair in the Yale Divinity School in 2010. Professor Tanner has published widely in Christian theology, ethics, social and political theory, culture and gender studies, feminist theory, and economics. Her work has been immensely influential and it is characterized by an impressive breadth of cultural interests, an inclusive theological vision, an emphasis on social responsibility, especially for the poor and the disenfranchised, a pronounced historical perspective on religious imagery, beliefs, and practices, and a sense of theology as an ongoing debate. She is a public theologian in the very highest sense of that term. Her books include The Politics of God, Christian Theologies, and Social Justice, 1992, Theories of Culture, A New Agenda for Theology, 1997, God and Creation in Christian Theology, Tyranny of Empowerment, 1998, 
Jesus, humanity, and the trinity of brief systematic theology, 2001, economy of grace, 2005, and Christ the key, 2010. She has held visiting professorships at the University of Notre Dame and at Harvard University. She's presented named lectures and lectured series at leading universities in Europe, North America, and the Far East. Professor Tanner is a past president of the American Theological Society, and she is a member of the Theology Committee of the Episcopal Church of the United States, and she serves on several editorial boards. The title of her series of Gifford lectures is Christianity and the New Spirit of Capitalism. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much, Professor Brown, for that lovely introduction to the Giffords as a whole and kind, of kind description of my own work. Let me take this moment to also thank Principal Timothy O'Shea and the other members of the Gifford Selection Committee for this wonderful honor. Uh, there's a lot to do today uh, to set up the lectures to come, so let me get started. The title of this lecture series, Christianity and the New Spirit of Capitalism, is designed to recall Max Weber's Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism. Weber, in that book, discusses how Christian beliefs were importantly formative of capitalism at its start. One might even go so far to say, Weber comes close, that certain Christian, certain Christian commitments were necessary to get capitalism started, given the oddity of what capitalism demanded of people, working more than was necessary to meet basic needs. There is, according to Weber, nothing self-evident, nothing commonplace about what capitalism asks from people. Capitalism is oddly aimless in human terms in that it requires the pursuit of profit freed from limits established by need. Capitalism, in other words, appears to make money an end in itself and to counsel hard work for its own sake just to the extent that the pursuit of profit seems detached in capitalism, at least in its startup phase, from the end of happiness. No matter how much money one makes, one is never satisfied. One's material needs may be met, but that doesn't still the pursuit of more money. One always wants more of it, whatever one's achieved state of happiness. Indeed, one is willing to defer the enjoyment of life, perhaps indefinitely, in favor of the hard work necessary to make more of it. For all the careful means, end, means ends calculation and, that, and, in that sense, rational procedures typical of capitalism, there's nothing natural uh, in fact, there's something unnatural, even irrational, about all this, at least if considered from the standpoint of the satisfaction of basic material needs, if that is one's end is simply to live well according to established standards of the times, as Weber thinks was the case before capitalism got up and running in the West. According to Weber, quote, under capitalism, humans are dominated by the making of money, by acquisition as the ultimate purpose of life, Economic, economic acquisition is no longer subordinated to the human as the means for the satisfaction of material needs. The reversal of what we should call the natural relationship, so irrational from a naive point of view, is evidently as definitely a leading principle of capitalism as it is foreign to all peoples not under capitalist influence, unquote. 
So where does one find the people willing to conduct themselves in this odd way that capitalism requires? Weber says capitalism finds them in people who are motivated to act in accordance with capitalist demands for religious reasons. Their religious interests are served by doing so. Hard work in the pursuit of profit takes precedence over the pursuit of happiness when such conduct is taken to be a sign of one's ultimate destiny of being among those favored by God and therefore saved by God after death. Hard work in the pursuit of profit serves no this-worldly end and therefore becomes an end in itself considered in this-worldly terms because, of its prim- because its primary significance is for an other-worldly end, salvation. More specifically, a religiously inspired psychological sanction for hard work in the pursuit of profit reaches its height, Weber thinks, among religious people of a Calvinist stripe who believe in double predestination, that God predestines from eternity some to salvation and some to damnation, and where the only effective way, it's also believed, of stilling anxiety about whether one is saved or not is the outwardly disciplined character of one's everyday behavior without regard for material enjoyment. If one is graced by God among the elect, ordinary pursuits will be of this character, coolly self-disciplined, restrained, non-hedonistic, and in that way amenable to capitalism's requirements. Faber thinks the duty, the obligation of hard work remains, even when the religious beliefs that support it drop away, as Faber thought they had in his day, in the heyday of industrial capitalism at the turn of the 20th century. Without exactly knowing why, other than that it has become a necessary part of his life, quote, the businessman exists for the sake of his business, rather than the reverse. He gets nothing out of his wealth except the irrational sense of having done his job well, unquote. Once it becomes a going concern, capitalism itself educates people to feel this way. It habituates people into this sort of ethic, and, is therefore, no, and therefore it no longer matters whether people are religious or not. Now, where does my own project come in? I share with Weber the idea, the hope really at this point, that religious belief, Christian belief specifically, might provide powerful psychological sanctions for economic behavior, whether intentionally or not. However controversial Weber's specific thesis might be about the significance of Calvinism for the genesis of capitalism in the West, and he's probably not right about that, but whatever. He might still be right about religion's practical efficacy, its ability to shape believers' conduct in everyday life and in that way have a bearing on their economic behavior. Of primary importance for that determination are not the explicit ethical teachings of Christianity about ethical matters, but what Weber calls practical impulses for action founded in psychological and pragmatic contexts of religion. Since it's never apparent from direct ethical teachings alone, the degree to which they're taken seriously and acted upon. Ethical teachings are practically irrelevant if there are no effective psychological sanctions for recommended actions that come by way of specifically religious interests, most powerfully those pertaining to salvation, how to get it and how to be sure of it. Religious interests motivate action, get people to act. Religious ideas specify the character of those interests and the direction by which they might be satisfied. There's a switchman, Weber says, determining the tracks along which action is guided by religious interests. 
Here's a quote from him. We are naturally not concerned with the question of what, of what was theoretically and officially taught in the ethical compendia of the time. However much practical significance this may have had through the influence of church discipline, pastoral work, and preaching. We're interested rather in something entirely different. The influence of, of those psychological sanctions which originating in religious belief and the practice of religion gave a direction to practical conduct and held the individual to it. Now, these sanctions were to a large extent derived from the peculiarities of the religious ideas behind them. People of that day were occupied with abstract dogmas. He's talking about the time when capitalism started up in the West. People of that day were occupied with abstract dogmas to an extent which can only be understood when we perceive the connections of those dogmas with practical religious interests in salvation and how to get it, unquote. To restate this Fabarian approach in my own terms, religious beliefs, whether of obviously practical import or not, are meant not just to be believed, but to be lived, to orient behavior, attitudes, and actions towards oneself and others. Those beliefs motivate action by establishing the value of certain state of affairs, salvation, and by telling people either how to get there, or at least how to prove or test one's being in those states. Religious beliefs also effectively steer action by making only certain courses of action seem reasonable. What one believes about the world establishes in great part what it makes sense to do. In cases where religious interests and their pursuit are not cordoned off from everyday life but attribute considerable importance to what happens there, where, for example, religious vocations are not confined to specifically religious institutions like monasteries, Christian beliefs, by all the mechanisms I've just been talking about, might form life conduct generally, permeate life in all respects, so as to establish a whole way of living with significant economic impacts. I share much of Weber's methodology then, a humanistic one, in its concern for the practical efficacy of religious beliefs. Whatever their source, whether based purportedly on revelation or not, as a natural theology would have it, At issue is their consequences for human life, a matter of general human and not simply religious concern. My aim as a theologian in using such a method, however, will be the opposite of Weber's. Contrary to Weber's project, I hope to show how Christian beliefs, a specific variant of them, perhaps equally odd but arguably as historically widespread, as a puritanical form of Calvinism, maybe not in Scotland, might undermine rather than support the new spirit of capitalism. What Christianity gives, it can also take away. I'm critical of the present spirit of capitalism then because I believe my own quite specific Christian commitments require it. But as we go along, I'll be suggesting why present-day capitalist arrangements are deserving of such criticism, whatever one's religious commitments. Because of their untoward effects on persons and populations, their deforming effects on the way people understand themselves and their relations with others. Every way of organizing economic life is flawed. Besides having, as we'll see, especially egregious faults relative to other ways that capitalism can be organized and has been, what's unusual about the present capitalist system is the way its spirit hampers recognition of those faults. 
The present-day spirit of capitalism needs to be undermined, therefore, in order for the present, simply, for the present system simply to be problematized, so that is, seen as a problem, amenable to solution, an object of possible criticism requiring redress. And in order for that to happen, in order for the spirit of present-day capitalism to be effectively undermined, it needs to be met, I suggest, by a counter-spirit of similar power. Without need any longer of religious backing, capitalism may now have the power itself to shape people in its own image. Its conduct-forming spirit may now be its own production. But, one, but as one of the few alternative outlooks on life with a capacity to shape life conduct to a comparative degree, to a comparable degree, religion might remain a critical force against it. The capitalism of today, I take it, is a finance-dominated form. And as such, it has its own distinctive spirit, by which I mean much the same thing as Weber did. Cultural forms, beliefs, values, and norms that accompany capitalism to help shape subjects and social relations more generally to meet its requirements. Capitalism takes many forms, and so does its spirit. Whatever the shape it assumes, capitalism brings along with it, as part of its normal functioning, cultural forms affecting how subjects relate to themselves and to others. Capitalism has cultural concomitants, beliefs, values, and norms that help direct conduct, that get people to do willingly what capitalism requires of them by encouraging them to see what they're doing and what they must do to get ahead as meaningful, valuable, or simply inevitable. Let me, in my remaining time today, develop what I mean by finance-dominated capitalism and outline its spirit before offering a precy of what's to come. Bear with me here. Some of this is technical. Not too technical. We're in a business school. Um, contemporary capitalism is finance-dominated finance dominated in several senses. First, simply in the growing importance for contemporary capitalism of finance-generated profit. Profit in the financial sector, banking, insurance, real estate, that sort of thing, is a growing percentage of national income when compared with the industrial or service sectors. Profit from financial dealings is also of increasing significance to non-financial firms. For example, car companies in the United States routinely make more money from loaning money to buy cars than from selling them. Contemporary capitalism is marked furthermore by increased financial activity. That is, the amount of money and frequency of transactions in finance dwarf that of other economic activities. It's not uncommon, for instance, for the money changing hands on foreign currency exchanges in a single day to equal that of the whole of world trade in a year. This shift to finance is no doubt propelled by the oversized profits to be made there when compared with industrial production or non-financial service provision. In principle, financial dealings have the capacity to be far more profitable than other ways of making money. One can literally double, triple your money overnight. This is partly a function of volatility in financial markets. The prices of assets on financial markets typically 
rise and fall quite sharply and rapidly for reasons that will be discussed in a minute. But it's also a result of the common use of leverage in financial dealings, that is, the use of borrowed money to make financial transactions. If I buy a stock with my own money for $100, I'll stick to the dollars. If I buy a stock with my own money for $100, otherwise I'll just, yeah. Uh, And the price of that stock goes up by $1 the next day, my rate of return is obviously far smaller, 1%, than if I had initially borrowed $99 to buy it. I had $100, now I have $101, so what? In the latter case, if I'd used a 99, if I'd borrowed $99 to buy that stock, I would have doubled my money from one to do from one to two dollars, whatever interest and principal minus whatever interest and principal were paid on the loan of $99 in the meantime. Uh, in my experience, theologians never follow that example. <laughs> they have no understanding, even after that simple example of how leverage works. But anyway, uh, I'm assuming you're different. This comparatively greater rate of return in finance often figures in reasons given for the shift to finance-dominated forms of capitalism to begin with. For a variety of reasons, depending on the economist one asks, the rate of profit by other means, say industrial production, tends historically to fall, or simply did fall, for for exogenous reasons, say international competition beginning in the 1970s. Whatever the exact reason, at a certain point, since the 1970s, there is nowhere for profits from production of goods and services to be invested very profitably apart from finance. Finance is the only place where big money can still be made. For this to be the case, and in order for finance to provide a remedy for a declining rate of profit everywhere else and not to be dragged down by it, Finance needs to bypass any direct link with the production of goods and services. This is the second sense in which capitalism is finance-dominated. Finance is no longer directly in service of production elsewhere, but takes on a life of its own, so to speak. Finance remains, of course, a helpful, even necessary aid to non-financial corporations, For example, a company, especially when it's just starting up and therefore doesn't have any capital accrued from profits, might need a loan to purchase equipment, or a retailer might need a loan to stock shelves. With the money to pay back these loans coming from profits made through the actual sale of goods and services. A declining rate of profit from those sales would presumably hurt profits from finance too businesses might have difficulty paying back those loans. The demand demand for them might fall, and so on. Loans for consumption purposes, credit card loans, payday loans, home equity loans, are one way of making uh, finance's dependence on profit from sale of goods and services less direct. In a stagnating economy, demand for such loans as a supplement or replacement for wages only goes up rather than down. When their terms are not so onerous as to sap the consumption they're purportedly for the sake of, consumer loans could also presumably help to resolve any profitability problem with loans to corporations for production purposes. Consumer loans, by fueling demand for goods and services, might help make the production of goods and services more profitable, thereby indirectly supporting 
the profitability of loans for production purposes. But better yet is a way to avoid being dragged down by stagnation in uh, non-financial sectors is profit generated through the circulation and trading of financial instruments themselves. That is, the creation of secondary markets where loans, stocks, and so on are themselves subject to sale. Such secondary markets in principle make for instant liquidity. That is, one doesn't have to hold on to a financial instrument, a stock, but can sell it to someone else at any time. Stock markets are the most familiar form of secondary market for financial instruments, but secondary markets now exist for just about anything with a claim on future revenue. Mortgages, for example, are almost always immediately sold, enabling the initiating party to unload the risks of default and of declining returns and providing through their very sale a source of capital for new mortgages rather than through old-fashioned commercial bank deposits. This is one way that finance frees itself from dependence on, from being adversely affected itself by an otherwise stagnating economy. Finance mostly finances finance. The way prices are set by secondary markets has the same finance, financing, finance effect, freeing profits generated there from being limited by tepid growth and low employment in the rest of the economy. While the prices of a company's stock, say, are no doubt influenced by current and likely future profitability of that company, they're directly set by current and expected demand for the stock on a stock exchange, which needn't be at all proportionate to the former. The value of a stock tends to be uncoupled from fundamentals just to the, the degree that expectations about the behavior of other investors establishes demand. If one bought a stock with the expectation of making money through the distribution of dividends from company profits over the long term, the profitability of the company should reasonably be the basis of one's decision to buy the stock. If one buys a stock in order to sell it for a higher price sometime later, increased demand for it at that moment of later sale is all one's reasonably counting on in purchasing it. The effect of every investor doing this is nicely captured, albeit somewhat unfortunately, by Keynes's famous analogy of the beauty contest, picking the most beautiful contestant based on one's assessment of her or his loveliness isn't an issue. Instead, one is trying to predict the contestant that most of the other judges will pick, with every one of the judges as well as oneself trying to do the same thing. Opinion simply chases opinion, then, with the likely effect of a self-fulfilling prophecy decoupled from objective attributes. Nobody, all right, that was supposed to be funny, all right, no, no. <laughs> to return to the stock market. Uh, expectation of greater demand for stock, perhaps prompted by some good, no good news about profit that quarter, itself fuels greater demand for the stock. The price of the stock goes up accordingly, perhaps way up, depending on the number of people convinced that other people hold such a favorable opinion of the stock thereby confirming the expectation of a price rise and fueling ever greater demand. The value of financial assets on secondary markets can, for these reasons, shoot up and down rather wildly from day to day in ways that simply don't reflect any comparably dramatic changes in a corporation's bottom line. 
The mass of new financial products that repackage finance, financial instruments, derivatives, and the secondary markets for them are perhaps the means by which finance-generated finance profits become most indirectly related to the production of goods and services, often nearly decoupled from it. Derivatives, I'm giving you the economic background that you say, so I won't have to go over this in the next five lectures, so bear with me. Derivatives are commonly defined as financial instruments whose value is indexed to other financial instruments. Their value is derived from something else. Commonly proffered as a reason for their multiplication, derivatives often serve the purpose of hedging against risks stemming from movements in the value of currencies and therefore interest rates, with the demise of the Bretton Woods agreements that pegged national currencies to the U.S. dollar backed by gold. Some of these risks have the potential to adversely impact the bottom line of non-financial corporations, and therefore to this extent, such financial products would remain in service of the production of goods and services. For example, because of international outsourcing and transnational operations and sales, the profitability of corporations is increasingly affected by currency exchange rate fluctuations. Derivatives provide a way of limiting, limiting exposure to such risks, of limiting the damages when, say, because of such fluctuations, the costs of the inputs one buys overseas balloon while the prices for the goods one's trying to sell on other foreign markets become uncompetitive, that is, too expensive for people there to be willing to buy. One gains such protection by, in effect, betting against oneself. One buys a derivative that will provi provide a payout to your company in the very circumstances that would otherwise harm it. Credit default swaps, those most toxic of assets in the recent financial crisis, provide another example of derivatives functioning like insurance. In the subprime mortgage crisis, they were a failed form of insurance policy against the loss in value of the mortgages that formed the basis for another sort of derivative, CDOs or collateralized debt obligations. If one owned such a CDO and were concerned about its possible decline in value, one could insure against that through a credit default swap whereby a second party would assume the risk by guaranteeing the value of the CDO in case of default in the underlying mortgages. The CDOs insured against here, like a great many other forms of derivative, are clearly designed to be profit-generating in themselves, apart from any benefit uh, provided to non-financial corporations. CDOs repackaged mortgage, mortgages, especially subprime mortgages, with high interest payments attractive to investors looking for higher than normal yields. Packaged them into bonds made up of separate tranches or slices of those underlying mortgages, the varying interest rates of such tranches or slices being determined by investors' willingness to take risk. Investors in the highest interest tranches would be paid back uh, last in the case of default among the underlying mortgages. It's the repackaging here, along with the existence of secondary markets for what's been repackaged, and the capacity of what's already been repackaged to be repackaged in turn without any apparent limit, CDOs squared, that is itself profit generating in ways that are therefore set loose 
from sagging profits through production. For, CD, for, for CDOs to be profitable, one doesn't need a million new houses to be built in an otherwise booming economy, although that, one, that might help. One simply needs the existing houses to recirculate, or short of that, the people currently owning houses to refinance. Simple circulation, repackaging, reselling of financial instruments in the case of derivatives means that here money directly produces more money rather than by way of the, sale, by way of the sale of other commodities. But even where der derivatives serve useful insurance functions, they're commonly decoupled from the sort of ownership interests that are of help to non-financial corporations. They thereby become simple bets on the part of otherwise disinterested parties. Corporations buy derivatives because they have an ownership interest in products and services denominated in different currencies. That is because of what they otherwise buy, say equipment, and sell their company products. But as the volume of the market in them suggests, derivatives with insurance functions are, are purchased to be profitable in their own right, independent of any ownership interest in what underlies them. They become, in effect, like insurance policies taken out on other people's lives and property. Uh, that's usually illegal. Uh, anyway. Uh, <laughs> because it, well, we don't want to go, go into why it's illegal, but uh, whether one was willing to buy or sell a credit default swap on a certain CDO or pool of them and at what price became, for example, in the recent financial crisis, simply a way of betting on the likelihood of widespread subprime mortgage default. Those betting correctly, for example, those investors betting on the collapse of the market in credit default swaps and in the CDOs they indexed, could come out ahead even as the economy otherwise tanked. Betting indeed is a common feature of derivatives, accounting for the decoupling of profit there from the rest of the economy. Derivatives that involve arbitrage or profit generation by way of disparities in the value of similar asset classes across different markets are prime case in points. We'll come back to this. I know that was un unintelligible. Arbitrage. Uh, keep that in mind. We'll come back to it, but not very centrally. Um, the sort of decoupling I've been describing brings with it unusual effects when compared with industrial uh, capitalism or service economy, with capitalism geared, that is, to the production of goods and services. Unlike finance-dominated capitalism, industrial capitalism, for example, is demand-dependent. There have to be people around with the money to buy goods and services. And therefore, capitalism of that sort can't make do with an immiserated workforce or massive unemployment. Finance-dominated capitalism is not similarly dependent. Enormous profits can be made in finance in the midst of deep recession or depression. For example, the lower the general wage level, the more people will be forced into debt in order to make ends meet. The more valuable those loans will be to them, the more they'll be willing to pay for them. Or, in keeping with the example previously mentioned, one can simply bet on economic decline by, say, shorting stocks or CDOs on secondary markets. The big short, the movie, has come to the UK? Anyway, thanks. You know what I'm talking about. Um, the sort of decoupling of finance from the production of goods and services I've been describing does not mean, however, that finance and, these other, and other forms of production go their separate ways. 
Finance instead comes to discipline all other forms of economic activity, corporate, state, and individual economic activity. And this is the third sense, and final, in which contemporary capitalism is finance-dominated. Finance disciplines corporations through corporate efforts to bolster what's called shareholder value. That is, the point of corporate management is to return value to the owners of the corporation, understood as to, to be the owners of its stock. The sphere of corporate responsibility, comprised of those parties to whom a corporation is responsive and accountable, is restricted to those owners of its stock and includes neither employees, unless they're stockholders, nor the community in which the corporation is located. Corporations are, are to be run with a primary intent of simply increasing the value of their shares on the stock exchange. What such discipline means in practice is a relentless drive towards maximum profitability. Not just profit sufficient to pay one's workers and overhead costs, with enough left over to ensure necessary future investment in equipment and some charitable outreach to the community, but, but not that, but potentially, but maximally efficient use of as few workers as possible with minimal unnecessary expenditures. In short, discipline by finance, in this case by the stock market, uh, which is controlling the value of your company stock, means downsizing. Working that much harder, the employees one retains to ensure their maximum productivity, outsourcing and shifting operations to lower cost sites regardless of community fallout, and doing all this in ideally rapid sync with changing stock market conditions without the time or space to look very far down the road. This is a specifically financial market form of discipline and not simply corporate self-disciplining with the aim of promoting corporate health. Um, this is clear because arguably uh, the uh, strategies, the management strategies that I'm talking about as uh, a kind of financial market discipline are simply not conducive to the long-term profitability of corporations. For example, rapid turnover of employees along with management refusal of long-term planning where it might lead to temporary declines in profitability are likely to be corrosive of corporate profitability over the long haul. That doesn't really matter if the financial profits from such manage management strategies are taking precedence over non-financial corporate profits. One can cash out one stock, which for secondary market demand reasons, has increased in value far more than quarterly profits might warrant before any damage done to the future profitability of the corporation becomes clear. CEOs paid in unrestricted stock options, as is commonly the case in the United States, apparently do, all, do this all the time before leaving to be hired elsewhere, an, an often now bankrupt company. One of the primary mechanisms for enforcing shareholder value also helps make clear that this is a specifically financial market discipline at potential loggerheads with corporate interests. Fear of hostile takeover, fear of hostile takeover. Whether they like it or not, companies have to be managed to keep their stock values high. If the total stock value of a company were to fall below, say, the value of its assets, it might easily be bought up with the intent of simply stripping those company assets in order to turn a profit. 
with the intent of that, that with the intent that is of selling its real estate holdings and equipment out from under it. In a hostile takeover, moreover, a controlling interest in a company's stock is often gained by borrowing money for purchase of that stock using the company to be acquired as collateral, that is, by issuing corporate junk bonds whose purchase is itself lubricated by the creation of secondary markets for those junk bonds. These loans then go on the company's own books once it's acquired, putting immediate pressure on the profitability of the company by adding to its costs. In addition to its other expenses, normal expenses, the company now needs to pay off the debt to junk bond investors. And that means instituting all those cost-saving measures that, besides coming at the expense of the workers in the wider community, might ultimately do even more harm to the company's bottom line. Aside from the money made by investors in those junk bonds at the company's expense, the financial interests of the now private company's owners are also served. They can take the company public again, for example, uh, by selling shares on a stock market at the inflated prices supposedly warranted by the, agree- by the greater efficiencies that come by way of corporate layoffs. One sees these kinds of trade-offs in the current BHS scandal that I've just been reading about. Profits to private owners go way up at the expense of corporate profitability when financial means are used to increase the former. A company is loaded up with debt. Its real estate holdings are sold off and rented back to it. Private owners are paid huge management fees and large dividends on stock in a now nearly bankrupt company, and so on. National and municipal governments are also increasingly disciplined by bondholders to similar effect, especially since the 70s, when many burgeoning welfare states faced crippling economic stagnation, nation states have been unable or unwilling to fully fund government operations through taxation. One very significant reason is their desire to attract mobile corporations through lower corporate tax rates. Every country and every subsidiary government under a country tries to do the same thing, prompting a race to the bottom in corporate tax rates. Nations turn to private investors to make up the tax tax revenue shortfall by issuing public debt, treasury bonds and bills in the case of the United States. Servicing those debts increases government costs and forces cost-cutting measures elsewhere, austerity measures. In much the same way, debt servicing works in corporate takeovers using borrowed funds. Cost-cutting means decreasing the size of government, that is, firing employees, working them harder to increase productivity, refusing to use any revenue surpluses to increase wages or workers employed, and so on. But unlike the case with corporations, lowering costs of government also means lowering output, that is, cutting service provision, which, unlike the products and services of corporations, amount to a cost rather than a source of revenue for governments. The, states might, the state might decrease its funding of infrastructure and education. It might, in general, renege on previously acknowledged obligations to guarantee the welfare of the population through medical or unemployment benefits, for instance. Many of the tasks and risks the government used to take direct responsibility for managing can simply be made the responsibility of individuals. Individuals must now assume the cost. This is the United States. 
The same government policies are put in place not just when pressured by debt servicing, when pressured to do so by debt servicing, but simply as a way of keeping one's creditors happy and interest on government bonds low. Are you frightened yet? Um, the discipline of cor corporations and governments by finance has the effect of disciplining individuals. Individuals employed or laid off by the corporations and governments disciplined by finance are also so disciplined. In the former case, they worked harder and live in fear for their jobs. In the latter case, they face the discipline of economic hardship made harder by a state reneging on its previous dedication to the well-being of its people. Out of work or underemployed by finance-disciplined corporations and governments, and without sufficient alternative sources of aid to ease their impoverishment, they may be forced to take out loans to sustain themselves, payday loans, credit card debt, secondhand car loans, to make up for lack of public transport, and so on, thereby coming under the direct disciplining by debt themselves. Indeed, attempts to direct the conduct of individuals becomes increasingly important in both finance-dominated corporations and nation-states. For example, maximizing profit through efficiency measures, whether in private corporations or government offices, means getting the most out of every worker. Those efficiency measures therefore target individual workers rather than groups of workers identified by job description, say. For example, by constantly evaluating individual performance, not just against shared team benchmarks, but against the performance of every other worker assigned to the same task. Lowering the costs of directing them, both corporations and nation states increasingly demand two of individuals that they become self-managing in line with corporate and state interests. They are to direct themselves, assume responsibility for their own lives, whether at work or outside it, thereby, thereby saving both corporation and state the efforts that would other, otherwise have to be expended to get them to toe the line, to be, for example, healthy and productive workers. Individuals in this way become a target of interest not only in their economic activity, but in their lives as a whole, it becoming increasingly difficult to distinguish the character of conduct at work and outside it. One must be self-managing of one's assets in an attempt to maximize performance, not just at work, but in the effort to lead a happy, healthy life. Or thanks to one in, one's indebtedness, the careful calculation of costs necessary for work efficiency is extended to one's patterns of consumption. One has to count every penny in every arena of life if one is not just to survive, but service one's debt. Now this discipline, of varying sorts, brings with it a general spirit, a general ethic, if you will. Max Weber maintained that capitalism would lose the need for any spirit generated independently of it, by religion, once it was up and running. Capitalism, in his famous words, would become an iron cage. Once capitalism became the only game in town, in other words, people would be forced to adapt to its behavioral dictates, whether they liked it or not. They would have to conform to a capitalist manner of organizing economic behavior or starve. Simple threat, forced coercion, do not, however, produce the sort of efficiency, the sort of productivity that capitalism, especially in its finance-dominated form, demands. In general, one can't get people to work that hard simply out of fear of what will happen to them if they don't. 
Although a finance-dominated economic regime no doubt uses the precarious character of employment, one constantly fears being downside, being fired, one underemployed, etc., etc., to its advantage. Instead, or at least in addition to fear, employees have to be made to desire what their employment demands of them. Ideally, their desire should perfectly converge with that of the enterprise employing them. And here is where an ethic or spirit comes back in. The question at root is one of subject formation, self-propelled, self-involved action in line with capitalist demands. What your employer wants, the maximally efficient use of your capacities, is also what you want, what you yourself value, because you see it, say, as part of your own individual effort at self-realization and not something you're forced into by a foreign power through external imposition. You're not doing it just because your boss tells you to, in short. The Protestant ethic was the spirit of industrial capitalism, where investments sunk in expensive equipment dedicated to the production of one thing meant mass production and mass consumption. That Protestant ethic was comprised of a set of values in which hard work was a moral virtue, rewarded with good pay, where the expectation was for a kind of linear, gradual advancement along a single career track, often at a single company all of which suggested the reasonableness of delayed gratification and long-term commitment. This is in many ways no longer the spirit of contemporary finance-dominated capitalism, which rewards flexibility and adaptability to constant changing work demands, where one might be expected to change jobs and tasks frequently and need to retool, where companies have no long-term commitment to you nor you to them. But in many other respects, as we'll see, the new spirit of finance-dominated capitalism amounts to the continuation of a work ethic in a heightened, intensified form. First of all, the link between effort and reward is not broken and assumes a highly moralized character. If one's not doing well, it's your own fault. Nobody's fault but yours. Secondly, one bears a completely individualized responsibility for for both the costs and rewards of one's behavior. No one is going to help you if you made a mistake in the sort of employment you chose to pursue or failed to accurately judge the risks of actions you took in the effort to get ahead. Third, this individualized responsibility sets off a highly competitive relationship between oneself and others. Your standing is determined over against others in a constantly expanding war of position in ways that I'll talk about later. Fourth, this ethic is intensified by being totalized, meaning there's no you apart from it. It covers the entirety of your life at work and outside it, and the whole of one's aspirations in the way, say, being indebted colonizes one's past, present, and future. Fifth and finally, the continuity of past, present, and future along a single linear employment trajectory in a traditional Protestant ethic also finds an insidious analog in the new spirit of capitalism. A kind of unbreakable continuity exists between past, present, and future. They, in fact, collapse into one another, fuse with one another in ways that make any radical break with the present order seem impossible. This is a constantly changing economic order regime, constantly requiring change from its participants, but one offering no escape from it. The future simply promises more of the same. This time fusion, with its imagination-constricting effect occurs in a a variety of ways which will help organize the lectures to come. 
First, the discipline of debt, for example, makes present and future simple artifacts of a past promise. Present and future collapse into a past that continues to make its demands and cannot be forgiven. Second, the constant demand for rapid near-immediate response to new developments makes past and future disappear. There's nothing but the present. The present monopolizes attention in ways that chain one to it, making one the prisoner of it. The short-term preoccupations fomented by financial means uh, suggest, have the effect of making you unable to plan for the future. The likely demands of the future recede from consciousness and in that sense collapse into the now under the weight of the present emergency that requires immediate response and grabs one's full, complete attention. Past, present, and future also tend to collapse into one another in secondary financial markets oriented to future value. On the one hand, present value is completely determined by expectations of future value. Present value just is the discounted future. We'll talk about this more in the fifth lecture. On the other hand, what a future value will be is determined by collapses into present expectation. That's what I was talking about before with the beauty contest. The bottom line of all these temporal effects, no future can be imagined that would be radically different from the present. The result is a kind of totalization of capitalism itself. No future exists outside present capitalist arrangements. What I, as a Christian theologian, will attempt to do in these lectures is to provide a Protestant anti-work ethic. I'll have to hear or heard all that. Who, who wouldn't want? Uh, I'll provide what I think are good religious reasons for one, breaking the link between the right to well-being and work, for breaking one's identification with one's productive self, and three, uh, for breaking the time continuity, the time collapse that constrains imaginative possibility under the current configuration of capitalism. What is perhaps now, unlike at the time when Weber was writing, a cultural backwater of little obvious importance for how money is made nowadays, has for that very reason the capacity to be brought to bear against capitalism from outside it in appropriate rejoinder to a system that purports to encompass the whole. Uh, That backwater was Protestantism, by the way. In case anyone gets it. Uh, although the current configuration of capitalism might not allow room for reforms establishing the new from within, one might yet break from it. In keeping with such uh, attempts at revolutionary alteration rather than simple reform, Christianity, I hope to show, is a religion of radical time discontinuity, promoting thereby expectations of radically disruptive transformation. Uh, Let me say a few more remarks about that and then I'll stop, I promise. Um, Just to give you some examples and we'll talk about these later. In contrast to a capitalism that requires, via indebtedness, an unbreakable continuity with one's past self that made the promise to pay the loan, Christianity holds out hope of not being oneself any longer as that's established by past and present. Such is the meaning of conversion to new life, of baptism as a death uh, to the old man of sin. Even apart from sin, Christian hopes tend to be quite, quite extravagant. To be saved is to have a radically transfigured self beyond anything possible for one as a mere finite creature. 
To be saved is to be elevated beyond oneself so as to participate in the very life of God, so as to share in the very properties of God's own life, eternal life. It's to leave behind simply finite life, one's entire life as one has known it up until that point. To be saved, therefore, does not mean, as it so often did in Hellenistic and Roman culture, to be preserved from harm, to be guarded, protected, shielded from a threatening danger so as to remain in one's existing condition. It doesn't mean to be kept safe so as to remain in the condition one was in previously. It means instead to lead a radically disrupted life, if not wholly now, if not wholly now, then in hopes of a future that will be nothing like one's present experience one's entire experience of past and present. Movement across a disjunction of this this radical sort between who we are in the past and present on the one hand and who who we will be on the other requires divine agency. God moves us from here to there. To break with oneself requires more than oneself. It has to be done for one. What one gets to, where one gets to, is therefore not a matter of one's own performance, but more likely, especially given sin, a reversal of what one would achieve by one's own power. It therefore becomes very hard to say, as the new spirit of capitalism would counsel, that one's future good fortune has been merited, that one is individually responsible for it. Besides its account of conversion, salvation, and the place of divine agency in securing them, Christian understandings of God are also potentially disruptive of the time collapse typical of the new spirit of capitalism. Christian understandings of God, as those developed in the early church under the pressure of extravagant claims made about Christ, do not, do not make God a God of this world by closely associating divinity with any particular feature of it, say its order, the reason at work and things. God is beyond the world, nothing like any part of it. God is not an instance of any sort of thing to be found in the world. Conformity to God, therefore, does not lead to conformity to the way things are. It does not mean, for example, as it did for ancient Stoicism, aligning one's individual aims with a a universal given order of things in much the way the new spirit of capitalism counsels a perfect convergence between one's own desires and that of the broader firm or the market generally, the cosmological given, so to speak, of present-day global capitalism. What it might mean for this, in some ways, very old spirit of Christianity to confront the new spirit of capitalism Uh, I'll be talking much more about that in lectures to come. Thank you. Professor Tanner, thank you. Can I just make a comment? Um, I'll just start with your um, question of the the leverage buy. You buy a a, a dollar, a hundred dollars worth of stock and you pay for it yourself or you borrow 90, 99 and you put in one and so on. Um, now, if you borrow the 99 and you put in one and there's 1% increase, you of course have doubled your equity. But that gain isn't a free lunch. It comes at the cost of assuming enormous risk. And anyone that gears up, British word gearing rather than American <laughs> leverage, would be very, very foolish because you could be completely wiped out. Now, one of the problems that you have very well identified is that the ballooning of credit in modern society has led to an enormous concomitant increase in unmanageable risk. The question is, who bears this risk? And what happens when it goes bad? Now, very, very briefly, without the details, 
The answer must lie in better institutions to control these risks and how they arise on, and the unintended consequences of these, uh, uh, this, this is rise in credit. One example, in 2008, in the UK and the US, we saw a huge number of banks collapse and then the, the, risks, the, the risk was then dumped on the taxpayer. But not all countries had this. <coughs> Canada, for instance, had better financial regulation, and there were no bank collapses at all in Canada, none at all. Now, that's an example of where you, you, you have good or better regulation of risks and very stupid and foolish uh, regulation of risk in the UK and the US. In fact, in the UK and the US, in the UK and the US, we've spent a long time unraveling the controls on untrammeled risks that were put in place in the 1930s in many cases. <coughs> so I think that what we need to do is to think about these risks and who bears the risks and what institutions can be properly devised uh, to, to, uh, to, to curtail them. Many of these derivatives you're talking about are actually completely parasitic. They don't enhance welfare or general standards of living, mm -hmm. nor do they ensure other people can get rid of unwanted risks. For example, the farmer who wants to sell his crop at a particular price, but it's not ready yet, and he's not certain what's going to happen. Well, you can usefully sell your a grain or whatever it is forward, and that's a sensible uh, indication of a risk market, but it's serving a purpose, whereas many of these other things are artificially created. And I think that's what's wrong. It's the artificial creation of, of risk, and then the dumping of the consequences of that on those that, those that aren't bearing any gain from it. <coughs> so it's a matter of institutional design and, and how you can fashion uh, institutions to make sure that this doesn't, something like 2008 doesn't happen again. I mean, that's just my initial comment about this. Yeah. Uh, no, I'll, I'll be talking about that sort of thing, risk in particular. Does this mic work? Uh, in the fifth lecture. But yeah, I would. I would agree that, I mean, that's what I was trying to suggest bluntly uh, in the discussion of derivatives. Uh, yeah, they can be used to uh, uh, protect you from harms, like any form of insurance, when you have an equity interest in something. But they often take the form of simple betting, where you don't have any equ equity interest in anything. You're just newly assuming a risk by taking out derivative. And yeah, other derivatives allow you to uh, uh, push off uh, the, the risk that you've assumed onto somebody else for a minor fee or whatever, depending on that. Yeah. I mean, you're raising questions of kind of what to do about all this, you know, to inter interfere with this. No, there are plenty of things you can do of the sort that you're talking about. I mean, you can restrict the degree to which you can use borrowed money to buy stocks, for example. You can outlaw certain derivatives. You can, you can outlaw shorting, you know, and that was done at least in the United States, the United States briefly during the financial crisis. You weren't allowed to bet on decline in uh, <coughs> mortgage securities because that, as I was suggesting, has a self-feeding character. The more people bet on the decline, the more the decline occurs. So obviously we want to interrupt that if you're a government worried about the collapse of certain markets. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I would agree with you. But I'm not, I'm not 
so concerned in these lectures with you know the practical things that you can do. There are lots of practical things that you can do, and Canada, for example, has done some of them. I'm interested in more. <coughs> I'm interested more in the way. Uh, at a very, very fundamental level, persons are shaped. Uh, uh, their own self-understanding is altered by uh, an economic circumstance in which this is done all the time. Uh, so not so much how to stop people from you know, making unwise, uh, risky uh, bets on, say, the stock market or something, but what happens to people when they're in an environment where that's done. Uh, and it's not just there, but I mean, part of what I'm doing in the lectures is showing this isn't just what happens <coughs> in derivative trading. You know, we don't engage in, I mean, maybe we do, I don't know, I don't you. You could, be, <laughs> you could be day traders for all I know. Uh, but you're generally not, you know, most people are not engaged in derivatives trading. Number one, you need an awful lot of money to do that, to make a profit. You know, you need a billion dollars for this to be profitable. You don't just buy a single derivative and, you know, yeah, <laughs> not the way it works. But there's a wider culture, that's what I'm trying to show in the lectures, there's a wider culture that is influencing economic behavior in all kinds of sectors, not simply in finance. So the primary thing that I'm talking about actually is often, <coughs> for most of the lectures, corporate workplace management that would go across, uh, you know, it's not just that financial corporations will manage the workplace in this, year, in this way, but call centers manage the workplace in a similar way. Looking for those kind of structural parallels across all those different workplaces, governments do that. Uh, increasingly, educational institutions do that. Uh, <laughs> you know all about that. It's much more widespread in the UK than it is in the United States. But anyway, the, uh, it shapes one's uh, understanding of oneself at a very, very fundamental level, uh, primarily because there's nothing outside it. You know, like, you know, it's not like you go to work and then you go home, have a whiskey or in Scotland, and you know, have a leisure time to consume or whatever according to very, very different norms. No, the, uh, you're being shaped in a very similar way, I'm going to suggest, not just at work, but at play when you have any time to play, uh, all over the place. So that, that's more what I'm interested in as a way of showing that, uh, yeah, religion is the sort of thing that shapes people in a comparably thoroughgoing way. That's why Weber was interested in it, why he was interested specifically in Protestantism, because he thought it did that in contrast to Catholicism, where he thought, well, I mean, I'm sure he was prejudiced against Catholics, whatever. But he thought, uh, you know, Catholics ran around doing all kinds of things, and then they went to church, and they were forgiven, and then they went back, and they did whatever the heck they wanted, and then, you know, then they went back. <laughs> Whereas Protestants took this seriously. You know, they were, they were at their little accounting books. They were, you know, tallying up their sins. You know, the, uh, you know their whole person was formed by religion in a way that kind of had no outside and that, therefore, their economic behavior was influenced by their Protestant beliefs, even though Protestantism didn't say anything directly about that. Contrary, I mean, for all intents and purposes, ignore it. Uh, but it was shaped by their Protestant commitments, in any case. So that's the kind of, yeah, so we could talk about, yeah, what we should do about this. This isn't a very good system, you know. There are lots of things you could do. Make financial transaction, transactions less profitable, you know, a million things you could do to kind of inter, interrupt this sort of system. But I'm not particularly interested in that kind of thing. But I agree with you.
Uh, thank you very much. Um, I was intrigued. Uh, your description of the new spirit of capitalism sounds a lot like church planning. Um, I'm just interested in the course of your lectures whether you reflect on how the uh, <laughs> spirit of capitalism has shaped church self-understanding. Uh, and if so, I look forward to hearing that. But if, if not, whether you reflected on some of those dynamics at all, whether you'd care to share. Thank not, you. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. No, I'm not specifically talking about uh, church life to that extent. But I'm, the spirit that I'm talking about is a set of norms that has the potential and actually increasingly infiltrates every dimension of life, including the religious dimension. So that's why it's somewhat, a, I, I use the term hope. You know, the religious belief could be uh, of a Christian sort or some other sort that has a similarly you know, person-encompassing, shaping character, that it could be a <coughs> resistant kind of force, resistant cultural force. But clearly, sure, the same norms, the same spirit, you know, influences religious institutions as well. Inevitably, I mean that's the character of religious institutions. They're not really an enclave, you know, in their own little separate sphere somewhere. Uh, they're influenced by wider cultural norms. But I'm just trying to make people. I'm not directly addressing that question, but I'm trying to make Christians more self-conscious about the way this capitalist spirit might be uh, also at work in their within their own church communities. Um, I'm saying that we hadn't mentioned about usury and debt jubilees and that whole idea but also within the practical terms the way that we've created money has changed radically in the last 40 or 50 years so that now banks can actually pretty much create money out of nothing and then sell it as an asset called debt so that was one aspect and the other which is more to do with the whole mindset to me what you've described is huge parts of the world being completely enslaved to this ideology and becoming unaware of how much that is shaping our being and our way of thinking about anything. Um, And most of it, to me, seems completely contrary to any form of Christianity as I understand it. So to what extent can we break free from that? Yeah, those are are very good questions. Uh, You know, I will be talking about debt, but... uh, I w- I'm trying not to restrict uh, the discussion to debt and explicit Christian uh, teaching regarding debt, like prohibitions of, on usury. That's what I meant uh, by an explicit economic teaching within Christianity. I mean, that's fallen by the wayside, but I assume it was once. And it was. Uh, the point is to, the point of what I'm doing is not to look at the economic teaching of Christianity directly. Because again, that doesn't necessarily shape, ethicists would like to think their ethical teaching shape human behavior. Uh, but usually that doesn't happen. Uh, so I'm interested more in the kinds of beliefs and practices that one has reason to believe actually shape conduct. And uh, you know, if you know something about the history of Christianity and condemnations of usury, it didn't keep people from uh, debt and credit relations. Certainly they've changed now and it's much more. But yeah, so that so I will be talking about debt, but I don't want to specifically talk, I don't want to talk in a narrow way about debt. Um, the other thing you're, you're suggesting, uh, yeah, I mean, part of the issue you're raising is what Christianity stands for. I mean, I'm recognizing that <clears throat> there are only certain forms of Christianity 
that would run contrary <coughs> to the spirit of capitalism, as I'm going to suggest to you know, develop over the course of the lectures. So you can't just say in a blanket way, oh, this doesn't sound Christian. Actually, depending on the kind of Christianity you believe in, it's perfectly compatible with Christianity. So in the United States, some of the most fervent backers of free market capitalism are evangelical Christians. And I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. I'll assume that they have good religious reasons for doing that. Uh, so I think it's, it's uh, required to do a very careful analysis of the kind that Weber did. He didn't just say, oh, Christianity is, in, you know, conforms people in keeping with capitalism. He, said, he went through different variations of Christianity. You know, you're talking about baptism, baptism. Talk about Baptists, he talked about Catholics to some extent, he talked about Judaism to some extent too. He talked, and he was looking comparatively, he was doing a kind of comparative analysis. Well, which of these forms of Christianity, say, would be most conducive to what capitalism demands of people? So I'm trying to do something like that. <clears throat> because I don't think it's all that easy to say, oh well, Christianity is not in favor of greed. You know, this is all greed, and you know, of course, you know, that goes runs contrary to Christian values. I don't think it's anywhere near that simple. Uh, in particular because the way, uh, I mean, the way the economy is currently structured can certainly give a lot of latitude to greed, but it can also just uh, suggest, well, if you're going to make any money at all, you have to play by the rules. These are the rules. This is how it's done. Uh, so it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody who's engaged in these kinds of activities, far from it, that they're immoral or something, or that they're especially greedy, or that they're especially anything, um, or envious, or any number of other things. So it's not easy to kind of like pick out uh, a set of vices, you know, that Christians have uniformly condemned, and just say, well, this is what contemporary capitalism fosters. It doesn't necessarily do that. We also have some audience members submitting questions by email. So this is a question from Simeon Burke, a PhD candidate at New College. He writes, Weber presents an unapologetically Western-centered thesis in the Protestant ethic. Moreover, this book was one part of a larger incomplete project in comparative religions and civilizations. My question is twofold. First, to what extent is Weber successful in describing, <coughs> especially in his 1920 introduction to the revised work, the differences between Western and Eastern civilizations? That is, do the distinctive elements of Western civilization he offers hold water? Second, to what extent should an account, and especially a Christian one, that seeks to partly reverse Weber's analysis, attempt to culturally transcend some of the Western particularity in which Weber couches his thesis? Yeah, those are good questions. Uh, I mean, they, those questions primarily have to do with Weber's specific thesis, which I don't have any particular interest in. You know, he's interested in the development of capitalism in the West, and he thought, oh, this could only have developed in the West, and it didn't develop in the East, and therefore there must be something specific to a Western mentality. You know, I don't think any of that is at all plausible. Uh, and I don't think anything about my lectures will suggest anything like that. Uh, if it's a question of, uh, I mean, I'm not making any exclusive claims here about uh, Christianity's capacities for resistance. You could find analogs in other religious traditions or even non-religious humanistic philosophies. I don't have any stake in trying to maintain that this is a specifically Christian or specifically Western Christian um, outlook that is sufficient to, or has the potential, let's say, to resist this new spirit of capitalism. Uh, 
so I'm, yeah, I'm aware of the problems with Weber's own work, and I don't think my particular thesis has any of those specific worries. Uh, yeah, and the, the capitalism that I talk, I'm talking about is not specific, I mean, I'm using the, the United States for obvious reasons, because I know it very well, uh, as a kind of uh, ideal type for things that are happening elsewhere. I mean, I think the things that I'm describing, most of the information I'm getting here is based on the United States, but I've read stuff about the UK and the EU and blah, blah. It's not that unusual. But you're talking about a capitalism that is global. So obviously this is not an essentially Western phenomenon. Uh, and I'm not particularly interested in genetic questions, like where did it come from, you know, how did it start up, you know, it's fine, you know, I'm not interested in any of that. But the, 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 the questioner is correct, that that is essential to Weber's own outlook, but I think it's outmoded at this point. Okay. We've had a, a, a fascinating first Gifford lecture. Uh, one of the aims of the Gifford series is, is to look at natural theology in its broadest sense as the foundation of, of morals and ethics. Professor Tanner is proposing to look at the, the ethical foundations, I think, of, of, of our modern condition, the um, finance-dominated capitalism, which is now shaping our world for better or for worse. Uh, she's outlined her approaches, she's defined her terms, and she has certainly captured our interest. Oh, yeah.